Hebrews. Hebrews. Last week we talked about Jesus Christ, the prophet. This week, the priest. Next week, the king. And go to Hebrews 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. Last week we saw God after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many times. In these last days He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things in His word of, by the word of His power. And when he had made purification for the sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This speaks of the prophetic office of Jesus Christ. But go over to chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling... Consider Jesus the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. He was faithful to Him who appointed Him, as Moses also was in all His house. For He has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, and by so much as a builder of the house, which is a reference to the Apostle, has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all house and all his house as a servant for the testimony of those things which were to be spoken of this is looking forward to the future but Christ was faithful as a son over his house whose house we are if we hold fast to our confidence and boast and the boast that our hope is firm until the end the Bible says the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God will stand forever. May He add His blessings to it. Let us pray. O Lord, Your Word is a lamp to our feet, and it is a light to our path. Give us now the grace to receive Your truth in faith and in love, and give us the strength to follow on the path you set before us in the name of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. The priestly office. The priestly office of Jesus. Now, as you remember last week, I told you that there's not a single place in the Bible that talks about Jesus, the prophet, priest, and king, but all throughout the Scripture it talks about Him as prophet, priest, and king. And it's called the Munis Triplex, is the name of it. And uh, I just for fun went by CVS and asked the pharmacist, do you have anything for Munis Triplex? And the pharmacist looked at me like, what? Never heard of that. Uh, well, Claritin D perhaps would work? No, we're not talking about the Mucus Triplex. The Munis, M-U-N-U-S Triplex. And it is speaking of the three offices that Christ Jesus holds. Now as the prophet, he declares the word of God to the people of God. 
And as we saw last week, His declaration is this, I have come to make an end of sin. What a glorious thought. I had seven more pages to share on that thought. He didn't come to make an end of sinning. This is one of the reasons folks will have a difficulty. And I say it's an honest difficulty. They'll say, well, we're Christians. We don't need to ask for forgiveness. God, Jesus on the cross did not make an end of sinning. He paid the penalty for sin. Just because I leave my socks on the floor or leave the trash bin open for the dogs to get in who drag it out, that may influence my relationship and affect my relationship with my lovely, sweet, and good wife. But it does not affect my marriage. I'm still married. Our relationship with God can never be changed in the sense that Christ is ours and we are His. He will never leave us as orphans. He will never separate us from ourselves, but we can grieve it. We can, and the Bible even tells us we can grieve the Holy Spirit whose sole function is to point to Christ, whose sole mission is to restore us to God. And so we pray and we ask for forgiveness. As it says in 1 John 1, 9, you know, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Right before that it says, He who's not a sinner and is a liar and doesn't know the truth. We are sinners. We're pardoned sinners. We're not going to be sent to hell because we didn't wear our seatbelt speeding down I-35. Praise God. Amen? Or left the trash bin open and the dogs got into it. Especially when you have a four-month-old puppy that's as big as the parent puppies and, and at six months is supposed to weigh a hundred pounds. None of you have met Liberty Beth. She's a mastador. I think you would enjoy meeting her. I know she would enjoy meeting you. She has a tongue about that long. Jesus Christ though is spoken of as the priest. And so the first thing I want you to write down is the scriptural idea of a priest. We're talking about the priestly office of Jesus Christ and number one, the scriptural idea of the priest. The Old Testament word for priest is a word called Kohen. K-O-A, no, K-O-H-E-N, Kohen. This word is exclusively used for the term priest. There is an exception of when the Old Testament uses the word priest and it is regards to false priests. It does not use the word Kohan. It uses another one. Kimarim. C-H-E-M-A-R-M. It really doesn't matter except this point. God's priests are exclusively known as His priests, okay, in the Old Testament. False priests were known by another name, but it's the same word priest. Now that's significant. Never were His priests called by the false priest's name. So the office of priest, that tells us something from the Hebrew word. It meant something. It was a distinguished class that was set apart. It, and that word is somewhat kind of hard to interpret, but one thing we know 
is that the word was the that word Kohen, K-O-H-E-N, was a word that is used that shows honor and responsibility in a position, and it is a word that is clothed in authority. Okay? Over others. How? Their spiritual life. And it always, without exception, designates an ecclesiastical officer. So this is the office of priest. Jesus having the office of priest comes from that Hebrew word because it's an ecclesiastical word, the office of priest. Now there's two offices in the New Testament. There is the the episkopos, the, the elder, and the office of the pastor teacher who's also an elder, or a bishop, presbyteroi. Those are the two offices in, a, in the New Testament. Some say, well, the diakosune is the third one. That's, that's not an office. That's a position of service. One is an ecclesiastical office. The one is an ecclesiastical servant. The New Testament word for priest was originally seen to mean this, mighty one. The New Testament word for priest means the mighty one. It's a hireus, H-I-E-R-E-U-S. It, it, it means the mighty one, and it later on became to mean this, the sacred person or a person dedicated to God. Okay? So that is how the term office gets there. And let me show you now the difference between the office of prophet and the office of priest as it relates to the Bible. The Bible makes a broad but very important distinction on this, and you can read it. I showed it to you last week, Deuteronomy 18, 18, write it down. But go to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 4. This is speaking of the perfect high priest. Look at verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So I want you to notice something. The priest offers sacrifice. Okay, he offers sacrifice. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset by this weakness of misunderstanding and because of it he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for people and so also for himself, verse 5, for and no one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God even as Aaron was. So this position, even in the New Testament time, the priest is called of God. He's not voted in, he's not elected in, he's called of God. There's a call. When I understand the calling I have, I'm going to write it down. All I know is there's just some things you know. And in a group of preachers that are called, that are really called, you somehow can find some common ground. But in this case, this is called of God. So I want you to hear this. It's an office that's called of God. It's appointed by God. The prophet, brothers and sisters, was appointed to be God's representative to the people. Alright? To be the messenger, to interpret God's will, and he was the primary religious teacher. Who is our primary religious teacher? 
Jesus Christ. How is He doing that? In the function of prophet. What does the Bible say? His Spirit is the Spirit of prophecy. Okay? The priest, on the other hand, the priest, on the other hand, was man's representative with God. He had a special privilege to do something no one could do. The prophet could not do it. The priest could approach God on behalf of the people. And it is true that the priests were also teachers during the Old Testament times, but their teacher, their teaching differed from the prophets. Now this is new. How did it differ? Watch this. The prophet's teaching was simply stressing ritual observances involved in the proper approach to God. So they taught the ritual. They taught the law. They taught the observances. This is the way by which God will be approached. That's what the prophet did. The priest, on the other hand, see, that's what Jesus did. And we read in the pardon this morning, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Guess what he's doing? Is he acting as the prophet? He's acting as prophet and the priest. Right there, but that's, that's for a little bit later. The priest spoke to the moral and the spiritual duties and responsibilities. That's what you see today. Normally, you know, when we live in a culture where morals have been thrown out the window, you won't find folks that threw morality out the window sitting under a, 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 a real preacher that fulfills that role of speaking to the matters of the heart, not just to the head. And so I want you to see this. Jesus Christ has been set apart. He has been called. And His message as priest is on behalf of the people back to God. And His teaching is on how to be godly. Okay? Got it? Now watch this. Let me show you though how the priest functioned. In the classical passage... This is the only passage, or the book, Hebrews, is the only book that calls Jesus a priest. No other book in the Bible does that. In this passage right here, verse 1, is the classical passage. The true characteristics of a priest are given and his works are designated. Let me tell them to you. Number one, the priest is taken from among men to be their representative. The priests are taken from among men to be their representative. This is kind of a reason it is good for you to call your minister when you need prayer. But I will tell you this, that's a two-edged sword because the other side of it is you have the priesthood of the believer because of Jesus Christ. You can go to the Father without anyone's help in Jesus' name. But to have a man whom God has called and set apart to pray for you is significant. And you should. We're not too busy. We, we will always stop whatever we're doing to do that. Verse 4 says he is appointed by God. Number 3, he is active in the interest of men. And the things that pertain to God, that's what he's interested in. 
He's not interested in the new ski boat they got or the new hunting lease that they could use or the new this or that. He's interested in the things that pertain to God in the lives of the people he ministers to. And, number four, his special work is to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Well, that's what a priest does in Hebrews. That's what Jesus the high priest did. I'm a pastor. I'm not a priest. And you know today, the denomination or the religion, the Roman church, the the Romans that have priests, those men are appointed by men. They choose it, the priesthood. I remember there's a good man in this town. He has a son and he said, I've all, my whole life all I wanted my son to do was be a priest. But he fathered a child and got married. And so he said, now he's a dad and I'm a grandfather. And it was, it was, it was a bittersweet thing because I don't know if he was, what he was saying except that he wanted his son to be a priest. And said, so, well, you can be an Episcopalian, you know. But I think grandson is already taking root in grandpa's heart. <laughs> so I want you to see that. Look what Jesus did. Jesus was taken out, born of a virgin, right? Came out of Bethlehem. He is definitely appointed of God, conceived the Holy Spirit. He's active in the interest of men in the things that pertain to God. Absolutely, He came, what? To do His Father's ministry, to bear the sins of the world. His special work was to offer His life and sacrifice for sins, and He gave gifts. He brought healings. He brought food. He brought resurrections, all of those things. And He still does that even now, having given us the Spirit inside of us. He gives good gifts, and all good gifts are from the Father above, and they're perfect, and they're because of Christ. And so this work of the priest included even more than that. He also made intercession for the people. What happened on the cross? What did Jesus say? This is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 7, by the way, but what did Jesus say on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So let me just show you now under this heading, the sacrificial work of Christ. The sacrificial work of Christ. You have the scriptural idea of the priest. We looked at the terms, we've, we've looked at the distinctions between the prophet and the priest, and we've seen the function. I want you to look at the sacrificial work of Christ now. The the priestly work of Jesus Christ, according to the Scripture, is twofold. It is twofold. His foremost task was to offer an all-sufficient sacrifice for the sin of the world. Now, I want to give you a word you need to know. Those of you that have journeyed with me these 11 years, you, you know this word but it's a word you must know. Propitiation. It's a Bible word. It's used in 1 John. Propitiation. Just spell it how it sounds. Propitiation. That means an all-sufficient sacrifice. 
the sacrifices up to the time of Jesus Christ were expiations. It satisfied the justice of God, but it did not satisfy the anger. And so when they offered their sacrifices, it, it satisfied the justice of God for the outward acts, but it never ever took care of the moral filth inside. Bulls and goats cannot do that. Sacrificial service cannot do that. So the sacrifice that was offered was a, an atonement for the outward sins of the shell, the flesh. But God's anger still burned because the morality or the immorality of that sin has not been covered up. And so they would have the expiation. And they would go and they would do what they did. Well, this idea occupies a very important place in Scripture. And it goes all throughout the Scripture. And it simply is this. God is the one who authorized and commanded the sacrificial system. And we see this in the law of Moses. What about the sacrifices before the law of Moses? Who commanded those? When Adam clothed himself in the garden after sin, that was a sacrifice. And from that sacrifice came the proto-gospel. You will bear the seed that will crush the serpent's head. Genesis 3.15, the proto-euangelion, the proto-gospel, the first mention of the gospel, the beginning of the covenant as understood by men. That was an, that was an offering that was done where there was blood. Then you see the issue between uh, the two brothers. And one made an offering and another one made a less offering. Who commanded that? Well, that offering wasn't commanded so much to speak because there's no blood, so that one doesn't count. And then go to Noah. Noah, after the flood, what does he do? He offers something. Something is offered, blood is spilt, it's brought to God, so forth. Then you see Abraham do this. Same thing. Blood is spilt, something is offered to God, typically for forgiveness or the remission of sin, but they don't know why they're doing it. Then comes Moses and it's commanded. Even Abraham taking the binding of Isaac. Well, there's a word for that. It's called piacular, P-I-A-C-U-L-A-R. Probably never hear it again. Piacular. Piacular means this, that at Moses, God required a sin offering. But all offerings prior to that were piacular in the sense that they pointed to the offering of Moses and the offerings of Moses point to the offering of Calvary. Now who was it when Moses gave the law that provided the offerings, the people? Who did the offering? The priest. Right? 
We're talking about Jesus Christ, the priest. What did Jesus Christ do on the cross? He bore the sin, the guilt, and the shame. His blood was spilt, and He died. Right? That's what happened. His offering was good. He was raised from the dead. The veil in the temple was torn. No longer would they need to take the blood of bulls and goats in there and put it on the mercy seat. The, the barrier wall between God and man had now been separated because now it was Jesus Christ. Everything has changed. Everything that started in Genesis with the clothing of their naked flesh to Moses to the time of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was all one piacular event looking to it. There was no interregnum. There was no interruption. It was one piacular event. God required it. One didn't know why they were doing it. Another knew they were looking for another. And one did it because he was looking for those whom he would save. Okay? Now, let me show you what's very interesting about Jesus in this as the sacrificial work of Christ. Letter A, the ceremonial and symbolic sacrifice of Jesus. The sacrificial work of Christ symbolizes and is typified in, in the Mosaic sacrifices. So look at me. Everything they saw on that cross, every Jew could see back to what Moses had done. Because Jesus was, they knew Jesus was innocent. They knew Jesus was sacrificed. They knew what the, the apostles had been saying about him laying down his life for a brother. They knew. Even the thief on the cross knew this was a sacrifice. They just didn't know what it was for. That's what the resurrection was about. And so what happens, Christ is the one who satisfies the anger and the wrath of God. And you say, wait a minute, I thought He was the priest. He is the priest, but He's also the sacrifice. He's prophet, priest, sacrifice, and king. No one else could do it. No one could handle Him to do it. Because to handle Him would to make Him unclean. He was clean and pure because He was the spotless Lamb of God. Like a lamb is silent before it shears. And so what does He do? It pleased God that He would go and give Himself and, exp and, and show gratitude to God on our behalf and give Himself on our behalf. And they were, they were literally watching before them the sacrifice of this man that just the night before in the Lord's Supper, they saw what the communion was all about. But they knew something else, what the Passover was. Because all of a sudden there on the cross is the Passover lamb. There he is. And so far as they embodied the idea of this, they, they didn't just see some kind of symbolic expression in this. The Scripture testifies to this fact. It says the animal sacrifices among Israel were piacular, though this feature was not equally prominent. Because why was it not the same? The sacrifices of the animals for men only cleansed them outwardly. And they had to do it every year. This sacrifice cleaned them 
internally, externally, eternally, and never had to be repeated. And that is taught in Hebrews. That's very clear in Hebrews. And so you have the, the idea of it here being simply that you could look at it over and over again that it was ceremonial and symbolic, like the sacrifices would be done at the, at the temple, but letter B, it was spiritual and typical. In other words, they were designed, they were this way. The sacrifices of Moses that were commanded were to prefigure, listen, listen, the vicarious suffering of Jesus. You say, well, what's this vicarious? You're just full of these 25-cent words today. Can't help it. Vicarious means that you experience something yourself that somebody is actually experiencing. So like when you're watching a football game and Troy Aikman's about to win the Super Bowl for the Cowboys and you're going berserk, you are vicarious, and then you go talk about it at Cracker Barrel, you are vicariously experiencing what Troy Aikman really experienced. Jesus Christ, so the sacrifice of Jesus is vicarious. In our place condemned he stood. If you ever have the opportunity to go to Israel with me, if, if that opportunity should avail itself again, there's a place you can go stand, and it's the praetorium. And it's exactly the X marks the spot where Jesus stood when Pontius Pilate sentenced him to the cross. You can stand right there where he was in his Birkenstocks. You can stand right there on it. And you will do everything else but not cry. It will absolutely move you. And you can literally stand there and say, in this place condemned Jesus Christ stood. It is, to, to me, the most meaningful thing. Why does it make me cry? Vicariously. I should have stood there. He stood there for me. And so they looked forward in the mosaic sacrifice. It looked forward to this vicarious suffering of Jesus. They didn't know it, but they were looking to it. And there is the connection between them and Christ had already been indicated. We studied the other day at length. Proverbs chap, or Psalms chapter 40. Do you remember I told you there was a part of it that waxed messianic? We did it on Wednesday night two weeks ago. Psalm, verse 40, Psalm 40 verses 6 through 8. It says, Sacrifice and meal offerings you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Who is the speaker? Who's the speaker? Jesus Christ, behold, I come in a special scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And then we went over and looked in Hebrews chapter 10 and saw that very phrase right there. Isn't that something? Actually, we didn't look in Hebrews. We looked in Mark chapter 10. And so what I want you to see here is that this, even the Old Testament is looking forward in this sacrifice. And consequently, there are numerous indications in the New Testament. Let me just give you four of them. In Colossians 2.17, it shows that the Old Testament sacrifices were prefigures of Christ. Colossians 2.17. The Old Testament sacrifices pointed to Jesus. Number two, several passages teach Christ what He accomplished for sinners in a higher sense than what the Old Testament says. In the Old Testament, those who, those who were said to be affected by the 
the sacrifices, they were, the, the benefits were brought to them. And that He accomplished it on the cross a similar way. That's a 2 Corinthians 5.21. Awesome verse. Here it is. He who knew no sin became sin, that we who are sinners may become the righteousness of God. In the Old Testament, the benefits of the sacrifice... Listen, watch this. These Old Testament, the sacrificial benefits were brought to the recipient. In the New Testament, the sacrifice of Jesus is brought into the recipient. Because right before he says, right before he says, He who knew no sin became sin, that we become the righteousness of God. In verse 17 before that, what does he say? Behold, I make you what? A new creation. That's inside out. So the sacrificial system under Moses by the priest was brought to the people. With Christ, it was brought on the people, in the people, before the people, behind the people, beside the people, diagonally through the people, every which way, through and through the people. It became totally personal. What happened? Jesus Christ, the priest, went to the Father on our behalf and stood there and presented the sacrifice of sacrifices. And He was and is one and the same. Because only a priest can do that. And we know that in, the New, in, in Hebrews, he says, and you are in the order of Mechizeldek. So we know that the Bible calls him a priest. And that's going to be what everybody's going to want to know after church, is what is Mechizeldek? Well, you can find that. The Bible says in 1 Peter, number 3, he was a, spot without, he was a lamb without blemish or without spot. And in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, last of all here, He is our Passover Lamb. Although it may not call Him the sacrifice, it gives Him every indication of being the sacrifice and a good one. What was the purpose then of the sacrifice? The two words. One is present. One is present. The present purpose of the sacrifice is this. God is given the appointed means whereby the offender can be restored to the outward place, a privilege, and enjoyed as a member of the covenant community. That's what he has done. And he has allowed this sacrifice to apply that way presently in this time, presently, so that they would have the benefit of it when they neglect the law or transgress it. So they accomplish their purpose and it accomplishes irrespective of how the person feels at the time. But that was the present sense. Now you have the prescient sense. Prescient. P-R-E-S-C-I-A-N-T. I chose that word because it sounds like present. Present. Prescient. Prescient means to look into the future. All of the sacrifices are prescient. So now when you look at the crucifixion of Jesus... They were not in themselves efficacious to expiate the moral transgression. It was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to which all of those pointed that said there is one who will come that will take away the sins of the world. And Jesus wasn't born to live in a manger. Jesus wasn't born to 
raise the widow of Nain's son from the dead. He wasn't born to go to the pool of Siloam and he wasn't born for all those. Yes, he did those. He was born for one purpose, to be the sacrifice. The prescient sacrifice. The one to which all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 speaks of. That's prescient to look into the future. That's a biblical term to look into the future. And all sacrifices followed until that moment. Then on the cross, it was over. All the sacrifice has been done. It's not only has it been done by Jesus Christ, our priest, but our priest even became the sacrifice himself. And so in conclusion, let me just close with this. I know this might sound really deep, but there's more to it than just calling him a priest. And we're Protestants. We don't, we don't run with priests. We don't know what that looks like. We don't have that undergirding. We're not from that tradition. We're not Mormon. We're not Roman. We're Protestants. And so today... Of the three offices of Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king, the only office that is universally agreed to among Protestants is the prophetic office. The one that is least agreed to is the priestly one. It is on hard times that we'll not view Jesus Christ as our priest. So the munis tri triplex is denied. But let me just say this to you. You write this down. The modern spirit of this age is very averse to the official office of Christ. This world is very interested greatly in the love and the self-sacrifice and self-denying Jesus. But it is not in love with the Jesus that paid it all. When you sing that song, Jesus paid it all, you are speaking, singing, theologically, of His priestly office. He paid it all. And that's not a hyperbole. That's not everyone loves mom, apple pie, and baseball. That's all without exception. But see, if I have to respond, if I have to do something in that, there's got to be some room for me where I can pull my own self up with my bootstraps. Well, I've got to, do, I've got to take him out of that priestly office. And I don't want him to be a priest either because if he's a priest, then that means he's holy and I've got to act a certain way when the priest is around this is the hardest term today in this modern evangelical day, even in this good old United States, the modern spirit is against this official office of priest because what does the priest do? He speaks to the morality of your heart. But Jesus Christ not only speaks to the morality, He speaks to the solution and the remedy He makes. And so what does that mean? Well, this is what it means for you to comfort you. Jesus is a real priest. 
Jesus is the real priest. The seventh chapter of Hebrews stresses the fact that his priesthood is vastly superior than the greatest priest of the Old Testament, who was Aaron. It says that his priesthood is vastly superior to Aaron. I have seen Aaron's grave. It's on top of a mountain between Ammon and uh, Raider of the Lark, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Petra. There you go. You can see it. And it's not in the promised land. It's in Jordan. And it's on top of a mountain. You can Google it and you can see it. You can't go find the grave of Jesus. I've seen that one too. It's stone cold empty. He's gone. And as the prophet, he sits upon the right hand of the Father even now. What? Speaking His truth through the Spirit to us. And what else does He do? Making intercession to the Father for us. Why? Because He's our priest. Why is He seated? Because the sacrifice is once and for all. You don't need to rebuild the altar and, and sacrifice. It's been done. Jesus is the priest. The high priest because of where He is seated. There is no veil between Him and the Father. And so, ladies and gentlemen, Hebrews also says this, when Jehovah swore, Jesus, Thou art a priest forever in the order of Mitkezeldek, He constituted the Messiah a real priest. So I just want you to know, I know it's a lot of big words. i, I got to be me and do it with you. When you leave here today, you just know this. Jesus Christ was appointed to the office. And it's a mighty office. He wasn't appointed by men. He wasn't voted in. In fact, they they killed him. He had all the authority to act on your behalf to the Father. But there was no sacrifice that he could act on your behalf to the Father that he could go find. And so he became the sacrifice. The last sacrifice. And as the last sacrifice, he is now present with the Father in heaven doing no longer his sacrificial duty. The resurrection proved it was done. What's he doing? Making intercession. What does a priest do? A priest pleads on behalf of God's people to God. And there is no distance. And where is he sitting? Revelation says he sits on the right hand of God. The right hand of God is the hand of judgment. Sits under the thigh of Jesus where the covenant is made. It's a fulfillment of covenant. It goes all the way back to what Adam was told. Did Adam know he was talking about Jesus Christ? No. Did David know when he wrote Psalm 40? No. Did the Spirit that inspired him to write it, every word Spirit breathed? No? Yes. But what do we know from the beginning of Genesis to when you get to Malachi? We have learned so much about God. And then there's 400 years of silence, and then what do you have? You have a baby cry. You have a baby cry. And you read Matthew chapter 1, and you see the lineage of of Joseph's line and then you go over to Luke and you see the lineage of Mary's line and you say you know what I've been in church long enough I know who these people is there's Boaz and Hodaz and Mickey and Johnny and whomever else you go through all those lines and say this stuff's boring no no not when you've read your Bible because you know the story behind every one of those names and what happens starts with Adam what happens it leads to the second Adam 
And what do you see? You see, Revelation has progressed all through Scripture. Everything was pointing to this moment. And the resurrection of Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. It's an unseen one, but it did. But it did not inaugurate His conclusion. Jesus Christ in the mystery of the Godhead does not know when He's going to stand up next time. But the next time Jesus Christ stands up, if God were a Texan, He'd look at His Son, He'd say, go round them up. Go get them. And if you and I are there at that time, we're going to stop whatever we're doing. We're going to get on whatever we're going to get on and we're coming with Him. And it's going to be glorious. And you know how He's going to be leading us? Not as prophet. Not as priest. He's going to be leading us as our King. And that's what next week's all about. Don't miss next week. I did these two just to do next week. I hope next week's a home run because He is the King, our King, and how He reigns for us right now. Amen? Would you stand with your heads bowed? Father, I do thank You for the Word of God this morning. Lord, I, I just, just thank You for...